Earlier this year, a Russian named Alexei Turchin made some headlines after he published his thoughts on how humans can live after they die. Now, according to Turchin, this doesn't have anything to do with God, like the Christians say, and it's not about freezing our bodies after we die in the hopes of reviving them later. No, his theory is that all we need is a massive and powerful artificial intelligence, or AI, that can gather information from our consciousness, and then when we die, download all of that into a computer where we can live a digital life, therefore escaping death. Now, of course, no technology like this exists. Even if we could build it, which we can't, be very complex, and it would also require more energy to power that artificial intelligence than we can create. So, Turchin says we also need to get to the point where we could create what's called a Dyson sphere. It's this big thing that would surround the sun to gather its energy and power that artificial intelligence. Now, if you're excited about that, don't worry. He is certain that we will be there in 500 years. We'll have all this technology. But isn't it interesting how many people are willing to put their faith in science fiction or put their faith in non-existent, powerful, and artificial intelligences like that, but, but they're not willing to put their faith in the all-powerful God of the universe. But this is the world that we live in. We live in a world full of people that resist putting their faith in God, a world full of people that are confused about what might happen to them after they die, and so they're putting their hope in all the wrong places and all the wrong things. You know, the bad news for those like Alexei Turchin is that mankind's ingenuity cannot save us from death. The good news for those like Alexei Turchin is that we don't have to wait 500 years for the answer to life after death. In fact, the answer already came 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ walked this earth. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus has power over death, and he has the power to give eternal life. These are some of the things that we saw Jesus communicate to Mary and Martha last week in John chapter 11, which is where we're going to be today. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. We're going to re-enter the story in verse 38, where we are going to see in a very clear way that Jesus does have power over death. As we do, we will also see the sad truth that many people will still reject Jesus, despite his miracles, his power, and his glory. And in the end, we will consider how we should respond when miracles aren't enough for some people to put their faith in Jesus. So we are in John chapter 11. As you finish turning there, let me just briefly recap what we saw last week. John chapter 11 opens with the sickness of a man named Lazarus, somebody that Jesus knew and loved. But when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he didn't rush off to go and heal him. He waited. When Jesus finally arrived days later, Lazarus was dead. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, they were confused. They were disappointed. They were discouraged. And that's because they didn't see the masterpiece of Jesus' plan. But they were about to. So let's look together, beginning in verse 38 of John chapter 11. It says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But, Lord, 
said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. I just want to pause for a second here before we keep going. Because you see, Jesus' request didn't make sense to Martha. Martha believed that Jesus could have healed Lazarus when he was alive and when he was sick. But in Martha's mind, it's all over now. Lazarus had been dead for four days. During that time, there's a belief among many of the Jews that when an individual died, their soul hovered around the body for three days in the hopes of entering back into it, but on the fourth day departed. Almost like the fourth day was more final in the minds of many of them. Now, even if Mary, Martha, and those around them held to that superstition, even if they didn't hold to that superstition, it had been four days. Four days, Lazarus was more than just dead. He was decomposing. So in other words, to Martha and those around her, whether or not they believed that superstition, there was no point to opening the tomb because no good could come from it. Nothing good could come from that. So Martha said, but Lord. How many believers have said that same thing when God gave them a command they didn't fully understand? But Lord. But Lord, this doesn't make sense. But Lord, this is an impossible situation. And believers, in what ways have we recently responded to Jesus' clear commands in our lives by saying, but Lord? Verse 40. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Believer, do do we want to see the glory of God in our situation, in our life, and in His plans? then we need to throw aside those doubts that often surround us. We need to stop saying, but Lord, and we need to believe. That type of belief moves in obedience. And that's what Martha chose. Verse 41. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. So suddenly... All of the confusion, all the doubts, the discouragement, the disappointment, all the questions. Why did Jesus wait? Why does Jesus want us to move this stone away? All those questions, all those feelings faded away as they witnessed the glory and the power of Jesus Christ. And you know, Mary, Martha, and the disciples, they already believed in Jesus before this. They believed that he was powerful too. They just didn't seem to grasp sometimes how powerful he was. Think about the disciples. Well, the disciples had witnessed Jesus do countless miracles. They'd seen Jesus demonstrate his power over nature, like when he walked on water, calmed the storm, fed the multitudes. They saw Jesus demonstrate his power over sickness when he healed the lame and the leper. They saw Jesus demonstrate his power over Satan when he cast out demons. In fact, the disciples had already seen Jesus demonstrate his power over death because they had seen Jesus raise a widow's dead son back to life in Luke chapter 7. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus raise a man's dead daughter back to life in Luke chapter 8. 
But what did we see Jesus tell the disciples last week? In John chapter 11, we saw him say that he was glad he wasn't there to heal Lazarus for their sake so that they might believe. Then later he told Martha that if she believed, she would see the glory of God. Make no mistake, Mary, Martha, disciples, they, they believed. Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God, that he was powerful. They just had a lot of room left to grow in their faith. So despite all the miracles Jesus had performed before, there was something different about this one. Maybe it was the depth of confusion these followers of Jesus had been in. Maybe it was the length of time since Lazarus had died. Maybe it was the thought that all of this was utterly hopeless. But then the miracle happened. And God's glory pushed all of that confusion out of the way for the followers of Jesus Christ. Of course, we can't forget about the crowds who were there that day. Many of those people who were mourning may have witnessed some of Jesus' miracles during his ministry. If not, they probably had heard the stories by this point. But there were people there that day who didn't believe in Jesus yet. So before he called Lazarus out, Jesus prayed that people would believe that he was sent by the Father. So whether you were already a disciple of Jesus or divided over him before the miracle, there was no denying it afterwards. This is no mere man. This is no mere teacher, no mere prophet. This was God in the flesh standing in their midst. Only God has power to give life. Only God has power over death. Jesus proved here what he told Martha, that he is the resurrection and the life. Then we see that as a result of the miracle, many of them believed. And again, if you're seeing the pattern, you know now this was, this was the point. This was the point of the miracle, that they would believe. That's why right now the focus of the narrative after the miracle, it's not on the, the reaction of Mary, Martha, and the disciples to this. It's not on the reunion that Lazarus had with his family and friends. The focus isn't on the celebration that no doubt broke out. No, the focus is on the belief. That's why Jesus performed this miracle. It was so that people could respond in saving faith and so that those who already followed him could grow in their faith. That was the point of the miracle. See, believers, God's miracles always have a purpose, and it is a joy when people respond by believing. In his book, Look What God is Doing, Dick Eastman wrote about a life-changing miracle that took place among the Quayo people. So in 1992, there was a group of Christian missionaries that went and wanted to reach this tribal people group with the gospel. While they were there, they learned that in the area, there was a large stone that the tribes called the Healing Stone. It's where they made their sacrifices to their gods. And it was an area strictly off limits to outsiders like these Christian missionaries. So these believers decided that they would fast and pray for seven days. Every day they gathered on the mountainside opposite of the Healing Stone and they cried out to God. On the seventh day, as a Quayo priest was going to make a sacrifice, suddenly a bolt of lightning came down from the sky, struck the stone, split it in two, and half of it tumbled down the mountain. And that pagan priest took off running. And they say that many of those who lived in the area heard the sound of the stone split, and they were filled with fear. But after that miraculous act of God, many of the Quayo people put their faith in Jesus Christ. And they left their old life behind them. See, believers, God still moves in miraculous and powerful ways throughout the world when he sees fit. 
Such miracles should grow believers in their faith and present unbelievers with the opportunity to put their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, sadly, that's not how all people respond when God moves powerfully. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. I just want to take a minute and comment on this verse before we keep going. Because there's some debate about whether these individuals who went to the Pharisees also believed in Jesus after seeing the miracle. Some people say that they did believe. The whole reason they went to the Pharisees was to win them over to follow Jesus Christ. But I'm not convinced by that argument. Let me tell you why. If you had just seen this miracle, if you had just seen a man who is dead and decomposing, miraculously raised to life, who would you go and tell first? Would you go to the Pharisees? who had already said that they would kick out of the synagogue anyone who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, and whose plans to kill Jesus were known by many of the people? Or would you go to your family and friends to tell them first the greatest thing that you had ever seen? Would you tell any stranger on the road as you made your way to your family and friends? You see, it seems more likely that those who went to the Pharisees did so in their unbelief, which is hard to imagine, isn't it? It's hard to imagine that anyone could see something so incredible, see such an incredible miracle, and still refuse to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Some people have so hardened themselves against God that they will resist believing in Him even when He moves powerfully, right in front of their eyes. Reminds me of what a Spanish filmmaker said in the 20th century. He once said, If someone were to prove to me right this minute, that God and all of his luminousness exists, it wouldn't change a single aspect of my behavior. Many of those who saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb believed in Jesus, but some of them didn't. Some of them didn't. The miracle, the power of Jesus, the glory of God right in front of their faces didn't change a single aspect of their behavior or their belief. So they naturally ran to their fellow unbelievers, the same ones who would continue to reject Jesus. That's the Pharisees. Let's look together in verse 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. It, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem, for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. 
They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. If you wanted a picture on that day of the truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, you just needed to look at Lazarus, who was out there walking around. If you wanted a picture on that day of stubborn unbelief and what that looks like, you just need to look at the Pharisees. Jesus had just raised Lazarus back to life. And all that they could see, their first thought was how Jesus was an obstacle to keeping their position with Rome and their power over the Jews. They said, well, if we let him go on like this, if we let this Jesus guy keep performing miracles, you know, healing the sick, freeing people from demonic possession and, and raising the dead, well, that would be a bad thing. I mean, these murderous people were the spiritual leaders in Israel. No wonder why Jesus said they were like sheep without a shepherd. Even their high priests advocated for the death of Jesus. In fact, they were so filled with hate, they were so filled with unbelief, we find out later in chapter 12, they didn't just make plans to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus too. These were the spiritual leaders. But you see, as sad, unimaginable, and as foolish as it is, there are some people who reject Jesus, even when he works miraculously in their lives. Even when his greatness and glory is right in front of them, they choose to hold on to their unbelief. Because to believe in Jesus is to let go of our self-will, to let go of our sin. It's to fall at His feet for forgiveness. But there are some people like the Pharisees. Pharisees weren't going to fall at anybody's feet. So even with this undeniable miracle, they weren't going to change their minds. And the sad thing is, it's a similar attitude that many people have today. I read a study recently that was interesting. The study wasn't recent, but it was an interesting study to me. In 2010, the Pew Research Center did a study on religious beliefs and practices among different age groups. And part of their study was that they asked participants if they agreed with this statement. Miracles still occur today as in ancient times. That was a statement. They wanted to know, do you agree with that? Miracles still occur today as in ancient times. Well, 79% of the people who were asked agreed. That is, that they believe that miracles still occur. That's a high percentage, but that's not what's interesting to me. What was interesting is that that percentage was actually higher than the percentage of those in the study who said that they even believe in God. In other words, there were those in the study who were saying they would admit that miracles occur, and maybe even some who would have said that they had witnessed such powerful things in their lives, but they still refuse to believe in God. And this same attitude, this same reaction to God's powerful working, it still occurs today. Which brings us to the question, believers, how do we respond? How do we respond to people who hold on to unbelief even when God clearly answers prayers, when God moves powerfully or even miraculously in their life or the lives of those around them? What do we do when miracles aren't enough for some people to put their faith in Jesus? Well, we know that we certainly don't give up on people. 
One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, which tells us that God desires that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And if that's God's desire, it should be our desire. So when it comes to those who cling tightly to unbelief, like the Pharisees and those who ran to them, here are a few practical ways I would like to encourage us to respond, believers. First, we need to pray for them. We need to pray for those individuals. We need to pray that their hearts would be softened to the gospel, that their eyes would be opened to their sin and their need for saving. And we need to pray that they would choose to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. We pray for those individuals, even when it's difficult to pray for them. Even when those individuals hate us or mock us for our faith. Even if they were to try and harm us and seek our harm like the Pharisees did to our Lord, we should still pray for them. Remember, Jesus told his followers in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, he said that we are supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So let's pray for those who don't believe. Second, I want to encourage us to be unashamed of the gospel. I say that because it's discouraging as Christians when people choose not to follow Jesus and how they respond to us when we share our faith can at times not only discourage us, but can even lead us to become silent about our faith. But instead, I pray that we would have the same attitude as the Apostle Paul, who said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel points people to the only one who has the power to forgive them of their sins, to the only one who has the power to give them eternal life. Let's never forget that. Let's never be ashamed of it. Which leads us to our last response, which is that we would share it. We would share the gospel with those who still do not believe. Believers, we know what's at stake when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to unbelievers. What's at stake is their eternity. So don't give up on individuals. Keep looking for opportunities to share the truth with them that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. He rose from the dead and he wants to forgive them and save them. Believers, I want each of us to consider for just a moment right now, who can we share the gospel with this week? Who can we share that truth with? Who do we know we are going to interact with this week that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior? And I would encourage you to begin praying for that person. Be unashamed of the gospel. And as you look for opportunities to share with them, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28. After Jesus commanded all of his followers, including us, to share the gospel, he said, Surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. And he will be with us as we share the gospel this week, believers. And I pray that that would be an encouragement to you. Even when people don't respond in faith. If you're here this morning, if you're joining us and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, you've never put your faith in Him, if that's true for you, I want you to understand something before you leave. I want you to understand that the same one who had the power to bring Lazarus back to life has the power to change your life and give you eternal life. But let me explain briefly what I mean. The Bible says the problem is that you and I, all of us, have sinned. We've broken God's commands. The reason that is a problem is because our sin deserves punishment, and the just punishment is that we will be separated from God forever in a place called hell when this life ends. And I know many people who are convinced that because they are a good person, 
they will end up in heaven. Please understand something. Please understand that if Jesus is not your Savior, the Bible says you and I cannot make up for our sin. In other words, you and I do not have the power to make ourselves right with God. We don't have the power in our good works and our church attendance and our tithing. We don't have the power to make up for sin. Only Jesus has the power to forgive us of sin. And so Jesus came and lived a perfect life, the thing that we cannot do. And at the end of that life, willingly died on the cross to take our place, to take our punishment, the penalty we deserve. And after he died, he was buried and then powerfully rose from the dead three days later, proving that he is who he said he is. He's the Savior, he's the Son of God, he is the resurrection and the life. And the Bible says whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you have never made that decision, please, please know that this is about your eternity. And you need to decide before you leave if you will put your faith in Jesus Christ or not. Because the truth is, you don't know if you have tomorrow. You don't know if you have another hour from now. So I pray that if you've never made that decision, that you would choose to give your life to Jesus Christ. Because he's been waiting your whole life to forgive you and give you eternal life. Would you pray with me? Friend, if that's you, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, but if you you're willing to admit that you are a sinner, that you need Jesus to save you and you believe he died on the cross and rose from the dead, please understand that the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So no matter where you are right now, if you've never made that decision, I can't encourage you enough to go to Jesus Christ. Go to him in prayer right now. Confess the fact that you know you're a sinner. Put your faith in His death and resurrection. Give Him your life. The Bible says He'll save you. If anybody has questions about that, I'd encourage you to come and find me during our final song or after the service so we can talk about that together. Dear Heavenly Father, please be with us. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, help us because there are moments where it's very discouraging. Because we want to see people come to faith. Some people just seem to cling so tightly to their unbelief that we can be tempted to give up on people. Help us to never do that. Help us to not stop praying for unbelievers. Help us to always be unashamed of the gospel. And help us to always look for opportunities to share it. Knowing that the Lord will be with us to the very end of the age. Father, we thank you for the ways that you do move powerfully and miraculously in this world. I pray that we would be a people faithful to praise you and to share you with others. And I pray that if there is anyone here that still hasn't made that decision, that's still clinging to their unbelief or to their confusion and questions, that you would lay it on their heart to talk to me, talk to Richard, talk to someone after the service. Father, we love you. You proved 2,000 years ago when you sent your son that you love us more, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.